The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good afternoon, ACB community. You are tuned to Home, Garden, and Agriculture. We come to you on the second Saturday of each month. Uh, bringing you a variety of topics uh, related to uh, growing food, keeping animals, farming, a whole wide range of topics. And uh, my name is Marge, and my co-facilitator is Deborah. And we have a, a wonderful guest speaker lined up for you today. So, Deborah, how is your garden? I hear you're having wintry weather there. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, first, before I go into that, I do want to warn everybody that we are changing to the first Saturday of every month. Oh, yes. I apologize, but we it will be the same time, but starting in February, we are changing to the first Saturday. But yes, it's, it has warmed up to 17 today. I um, am just delighted that it's not in the single digits anymore. Uh, We have gotten a fair amount of snow and it's snowing again. We have a winter warning and that nice mild winter I was having just disappeared about a week ago. Uh, My plants in the greenhouse will probably not survive this. I'll see, Mm -hmm. but um, I kind of doubt they will. I don't heat the greenhouse. Uh, But I do have some calendula blooming in the house in the arrow garden. It's very lovely. I have a lot of basil growing. And my stevia is actually slowly making its way up. It's growing very, very slowly. Mm -hmm. But it is alive. (laughs) So... Uh, I, I have a little bit of gardening going on, but mostly a bunch of snow and ice. How about mm-hmm. you, Marge? How are things going in Savannah? Well, I know I shouldn't complain, but it's in the 50s and it's breezy. I don't like it. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, it's, uh, like it's, winter. <laughs> it's winter. It's <laughs> winter. And I harvested my first beets yesterday and uh, mm. ate those greens right away and they were delicious. And uh, I'm very happy with, with the beets and with most of the other crops this winter. As y'all can tell, I'm in a different part of the country from, from Deborah. But uh, yeah, we we go on despite uh, whatever the winter might throw at us. It's wetter here um, in Savannah on the coast of Georgia. Wetter here this winter, thanks to El Nino. But uh, that's that's all right. I I'm I'm not really complaining. <laughs> uh, so <yeah>, Deborah and <laughs> I have a, a beautiful. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Deborah and I have a a special guest for y'all today, and I'm going to take the privilege of introducing um, Peggy, the blind history lady, because Peggy and I knew each other as teenagers in Minnesota and uh, haven't had a lot of contact since that time. So I think a great way to start here, Peggy, is to ask you how you came to the title, the, The Blind History Lady, 
How did you get started um, doing this kind of research work? And uh, what sort of sources do you go to to uh, learn about what you're going to tell us about today? Uh, thank you, March. And it's great to hear your voice after many, many years. Yeah. Um, I got the title of the Blind History Lady as a joke, actually. Um, I was at a convention and somebody was giving a brief history of some interesting thing about blind people and I corrected them and they jokingly called me the blind history lady. And so when I decided to really take my research and do something with it, which was about 2012, uh, I had to come up with sort of a, a, a handle for the project or a title for the project. And so I said blind history lady and it's just kind of stuck. I got started with my research back in the um, late 1970s, early 80s when I was charged with going through all the boxes and file cabinets at the Home for the Blind in Minneapolis, uh, St. Paul actually, and we were moving, we we're selling the building and moving into about a thousand square feet. So all the old stuff had to fit into one file cabinet. And I'm, I'm telling you, I regret every piece of paper I threw out today, but I threw out thousands of pieces of paper and I was charged with keeping the minutes, the financial records, anything I thought was important, the old newsletters. And every once in a while I'd stop and check out something that um, I was tossing. One of them was a letter from one of the state board members in the early 1920s to another state board member in the 1920s. And they were talking about meeting with our blind congressman over the Robbins bill. Naturally, they did not say who our blind congressman was because everybody knew back in the 1920s. Well, I didn't know. And I had grown up in the blind community in North Dakota, uh, where I grew up for the first nine, ten years of my life, I knew the blind piano tuners and the rug weavers and the door-to-door -door salesmen. And, you know, by the time I hit my 20s, I kind of thought I knew it all about blindness. Well, those materials indicated to me I knew nothing about it. So I would save a few things here and there and began doing that a little bit more as time went on, I learned that the blind congressman from Minnesota was Thomas David Shaw, who went on to be a blind U.S. senator at the same time as Thomas Pryor Gore was a blind senator and had the opportunity to uh, interview his Thomas David Shaw's daughter-in-law and grandson. Um, who lived in New Mexico uh, when I was living in New Mexico and gave me a really interesting view on uh, Thomas David Shaw. They believe that he was killed by the Democratic Mafia in Minnesota and they have a lot of circumstantial evidence to support that. Uh, he was run over, hit and run accident in 1935 in Washington DC. He and his um, Aide parked the car, got out. They were going to do a little Christmas shopping. And as he stepped out into the street, this car comes out of nowhere and hits the two of them. 
And the guy goes about half a block, gets out of the car and yells back, well, he shouldn't have been in the street anyway, which is an interesting comment in the sense that Shaw did carry a cane, but it was the fashionable walking stick of the times. And later on, the man who hit him, uh, he was found not guilty because the blind guy shouldn't have been in the street anyway. Uh, thus why we oh, have, my goodness. Yeah, that's why we have white cane laws. Um, but uh, the man who was unemployed at the time, um, later on, he had a nice house that he owned, still unemployed. His children went to private school and on to college and with no visible means of support. So there was a lot of, after I heard that story, um, I found a lot of documentation that really could support that, yeah, he was actually um, a contract um, hit. Anyway, um, so that's kind of how I got started. And then, in, in and, about, and I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say, and, and what um, prompted your interest in um, blind people in agriculture? Because it sounds like you, you've dug up quite a bit of inf information about blind people in agriculture. I did. Since the 1980s, I have been collecting all kinds of stuff, um, books, news articles, um, magazine stories. And about nine, in about 2012, I kind of was told to either get rid of this stuff or do something with it because it's taken over the den. I'd also gotten involved in genealogical research. And this is, you know, right around 1999 when Ancestry.com was just getting started. There wasn't a lot on the internet. There wasn't a lot digitized. And so I went to a lot of classes to learn how to ferret out information and have been using that when it comes to our blind ancestors, which is what I call them, because we do have things online. And as time goes by, more things are coming online, becoming more digitized. Um, I first started to use school biennial reports. Um, and when I first started looking for biennial reports, you had to go down to the state library and photograph them and then take them home and have somebody transcribe them. Now several of them are online thanks to Perkins um, and got a lot of names, but also learned a lot about the schools for the blind. And like I said, I collected a lot of these articles. So when I would get stumped on my family history, I'd take one of these articles about a blind person and start in on their lives and learned a lot about each of them and began to put together stories uh, about these people. Uh, when it comes to agriculture, the schools for the blind were very, very different across the country as they were opening up. You had the East Coast schools who were for functioning um, as training schools for blind people to become musicians, choir directors, and then later on piano tuners and orators, speakers, teachers, professors, uh, mostly in music, of course. Uh, but as the country was opening up, and if states were taking an interest in blind people and schools were opening up, especially in the Midwest, you had a lot of agriculture happening in the school. 
not necessarily that agriculture was taught, but that these schools were supposed to be self-sustaining. And so they had a proportion, couple of sections of land, whatever, uh, that they grew crops, they had cattle, chickens, um, you know, cows for dairy, chickens for eggs, and grew a lot of their fruits and vegetables. The girls participated with the staff to can those fruits and vegetables or serve them at the meals. So the schools, <coughs> excuse me, were teaching this indirectly. However, you've got certain schools like Iowa, Minnesota, who had agricultural focused classes or assignments that were maybe extracurricular because they knew that many of those children, once they left the school for the blind, were going back to a rural farming community and most likely getting a farming job. Now, I say that because the 1910 census is also a great resource if you're doing any research on blind people because the 1910 census focused on finding how many blind people there were in the United States and to ensure that people doing the canvassing found the blind people, they were actually paid extra if they found blind people. The reason hmm. was because there was already talk about needing to have some sort of national either education focused training for blind people. By 1900, there was already, already talk about a college for the blind, which really didn't go anywhere. But there was, out of that came legislation that proposed scholarships available through the federal government for blind people to go to college in order to determine what really were blind people doing. That was re part of this reason for the uh, focus for blindness on this census. So the census data then was analyzed and they found that two-thirds of the blind population were working and being self-supporting. That meant they were not getting charity money, they were not getting support from their family, and they weren't getting any kind of um, community welfare public assistance. You understand there was no federal uh, assistance of any kind really at that time. Mm -hmm. What did they mean by self-supporting? Well, most of the jobs that blind people held were in ag agriculture. Some of them were working for families, some of them were hired out as agricultural workers, and some of them had their own farms. You look at some of the people who started their own farms or who took the farm over from mom and dad or, or grandpa or uncle. Um, broomcorn was one of their primary cop crops because they harvested the broomcorn, made the brooms, and then sold the brooms. So, you know, everything was all inclusive, which is one reason why uh, broom making got to be very popular with institutions. It's because some of these farmers who were growing their own corn their own broom corn and making their brooms, harvesting their crops, selling their brooms were making a good amount of money. And of course, they also had cattle or chickens or grew their own huge gardens and so on. Um, 
you had the schools like Montana, for example, the school was to open for the deaf and blind. They were given some land and they started to build the buildings, but opened the school anyway. So the kids ended up helping to finish building the buildings, building the furniture. That means building their own bed, their own, the tables, the bookcases, the fencing, finishing the farms. They did the planting, harvesting of the crops, uh, fed cattle. Um, that school had a lot of financial issues and knowing some of the students that went through the first 10 years of that school, it is not surprising that the blind students who graduated went on to uh, own their own movie theaters, doing all the woodworking, even installing electricity when it came to town into their own theater because they were already using tools, building their own bed uh, by the age of eight. Um, so the school out of necessity, although it wasn't part of the curriculum, was having the kids basically build the school, uh, take care of the farming, take care of supplying them with their own food, um, butchering. And you had deaf and blind kids doing this. Some of it was divided a little bit where the blind kids did this and the sighted and the deaf kids did that. But in the first several years, especially, it was who had the skill and the boys get the boys out there because, you know, boys can do the, the work outside uh, and suffer the cold a little bit better in the winter. One of the winters at school had absolutely no heat. And so they lived, cooked, were educated, slept all in the same two rooms because they could only afford to keep two rooms warm enough so that the kids wouldn't freeze. But as I said, yeah, and it gets, it gets cold in Montana. Yes, it does. I, I just wanted to go back for a minute. So something you said really struck me. So the census of 1910 showed that basically two-thirds of blind people were self-sufficient. So you know, in 1910, when, we had a higher employment rate than yes, now. Well, because they had to be. They had to figure out something. Mm -hmm. If you did not have a way to support yourself, the, the whole mindset of the country was different. If you went to the county or your town and asked for financial support, it went into the newspaper. That meant that your family, who was not supporting you, was shamed at church, shamed in business. Um, there was much shame attached to welfare. Um, it was far better to go to jail than it was to go to the, the poor farms. You take the poor farm in um, St. Paul, Minneapolis, which is now where the fairground is. That was a poor farm. And basically what happened is you went into the poor farm at sunset, the police locked the doors, the gates, and it was a town unto itself. If you were a blind person, who didn't have anybody to sit up and watch your belongings um, while you slept for a few hours. You probably didn't have shoes in the morning. You certainly had no fun, uh, possessions of any value. 
Um, and of course, for women in poorest farms was much worse. Um, it was far better to go to jail. And when Montana has um, some really interesting histories that I was able to glom onto, and they didn't waste time with um, prettying up the story in the newspapers. So it would talk about these blind women who would come to town and they would beg, which was a violation of a town ordinance. And they would try and get caught Friday afternoon because the judge wasn't going to be back till Tuesday. So that meant they had three nights in jail, a nice warm bed, meals, place to stay. It hmm. uh, we could go on about the press and how they treat blind people. Yeah. But that's not why we're here. So um, yeah. you've got you've got the early blind farmers with the broom corn and you know that's like in Ohio and and so on and so we're moving west across the country and you're finding they're taking over the farms they're growing the crops that are um, common to that area in Minnesota uh, I enjoyed learning about some of the blind farmers. One gentleman uh, went to the school for the blind and learned to be a cooper, which is building barrels, uh, because that's what they taught for the blind men at that time going to the school. We're talking the 1860s and 70s here. He went back to the farm and he would... Uh, take the milk out in the morning. At four o'clock in the morning, they would load up the wagon and he would drive his wagon with a horse to the farms or to town and deliver the milk. So that it was there by seven o'clock, you know, breakfast time. Now, when he was interviewed by a newspaper, he talked about doing this and the reporter says, well, how did you know where you were going? And he said, well, first of all, at four in the morning, it's dark. Nobody can see anything, whether you're sighted or blind. Second of all, you go by the horse's instinct. You have an idea where the, the, the road is. And we are talking pre-electricity um, because we're talking the 1870s here. And he says, you know, you just, you learn to hear the trees or the difference in the airflow when you get past the grove of trees on so-and-so's farm. You know about how far it is. And he says, and besides, I the horse kind of knows the way. Uh, and I say that because there's several, uh, there was a blind farmer in Pennsylvania who had a small farm and also did some woodworking. He had a little store on his property and he would sell his eggs and so on, but he was also then uh, making deals and selling fabric, what have you, out of his store. And because he would have to take his buggy or his um, wagon to town, he would give rides to people. And he actually found he could actually, for a few years, make more money being a taxi service to and from other towns nearby from the people in his community than he could with his store. So he would shut his store down a couple of times, a couple of days a week and have basically a taxi service with his horse and wagon. Uh, farmers did have other occupations just as farmers back then had other occupations as they do today. Um, 
Some of them were furniture makers. Some of them were piano tuners. Uh, they had enough farmland to grow the crops for their family and a little bit more. And maybe their children would have a stand, roadside stand. Um, maybe they would take them to town. Maybe they would take their cattle to town. Uh, but they also had these other occupations on the side for the winter months uh, to make ends meet as farmers. Because as we all know, um, not all farmers do that, that well. And sometimes your year just is not very good. So these farmers took up their other occupations. Some they were taught as uh, students at the School for the Blind, but many of these people went blind later on in life. And they kept farming because it's what they knew. Um, some of them quit farming because they didn't have any idea that a blind person could do it. It depended on their mindset. Uh, their mindset is whether or not they could do it or not, or how desperate they were. If you felt you were going to lose the family farm, you did anything you probably could do to save that family farm. That might mean changing from being more of crop-oriented to raising cattle or vice versa. And I say that only because when I look at these stories, people think, how can I do this anymore now that I'm blind? I will do this other thing because I can see how to do that as a blind person. Um, here in Colorado, we have a story of a blind woman who was a chiropractor, or she was actually sighted at the time, and she um, went blind in a car accident and did not think she could be a chiropractor, so she went into teaching. And at the same time in Nebraska, right next door, we have this blind woman who has been a teacher for a long time, needs a change of pace, and becomes a chiropractor. Uh, and she actually was a chiropractor for another 50 years. Had those two women been able to talk, would their lives have been different? The lady from Nebraska, probably not, because she was a very um, secure person in herself. She actually went on to be a state legislature, legislator in the 1930s. Um, but would that life have been very different for the person here in Colorado? Probably. She had a very successful practice and gave it up because she did not know that a blind person could be a chiropractor. And that's the so, same with the um, farming. Wow, this is this is just absolutely fantastic. I think we're going to have to have a second, have you on again. Um, I, I, do, I, I do want to ask you about you mentioned um, farmers dating in the U.S. dating clear back to the 1700s. Correct. And also, uh, we do need to open this up and see if people want to call in and and um, ask questions. But uh, could you speak a little bit to the early, the very, very early records of blind farmers in the U.S.? Most of those records come from stories, family, um, memoirs. Uh, when I'm researching, I don't, uh, I don't rely on the internet because frankly, there's not a lot out there about us on the internet. What mostly is out there about studies about our eye diseases and so on. What I learned in my ge um, geol <laughs> genealogical classes was how to uncover 
other documents and going through the back doors of newspapers, um, families. Sometimes to find out more about a family, I have to trace a brother for a while. I enjoy speaking to the grandchildren of blind people, uh, the great-grandchildren, if the stories have been passed on. However, many of our blind ancestors did not have children, especially if they were born blind because blind people can't raise children. You know, it's too scary. Um, so they didn't have children or they were afraid of passing it on. So I talked to um, nieces, grandnieces, great-grandnieces, nephews, and so on. And I am surprised at how much has been preserved and really sad at how much has not been preserved. But also in the records, the early records of the schools for the blind, they would have stories about uh, a blind person from the community or from another part of the state who came in and talked to the kids about how they did their trade. And so that gave me a starting place to go in and research the person who came in and spoke to the uh, person. Or when legislation was introduced in, um, in Congress or in state legislatures who have their records online, it's interesting to find the people who spoke for legislation for the blind and interesting to talk to, uh, read the legislation, read the evidence that was produced against it because it gives you a lot of clues about the type of life that people had in those states. And we don't do that much anymore. We're so worried about privacy that we are not telling our stories and our history is literally going in the shredder. Wow, that, well, let's, uh, so Joey is our Zoom host, and Jane is uh, doing Clubhouse and streaming. Um, do either of you have any hands raised, anyone we, who has a question for we have We have two hands on Zoom. We have Jewel and Janet on Zoom. Okay. So let's start out with Jewel. All right. Jill, you're up. Okay, can you hear me now? Yep. Yes. The gremlins have been very strange not letting me unmute a lot. <laughs> I've had that issue in a lot of calls. They're cold um, today. So, yeah, the gremlins are being very cold. <laughs> um, <laughs> cruel and cold. So I want to speak on the past, present, and future just to give you a very brief. Um, I was raised on a family farm, what we nowadays call a homestead, no less than five acres at any time. We had lots of animals. Um, and um, I recently was living on a property that was almost two acres and did that as a blind person. As a kid, I was sighted um, and, you know, really could see, hey, I can do this. Um, and so my future is I'm working towards getting a property and having my own homestead. So my questions are two things speaking to both the past and the future. Um, one, how do we find stories about blind farmers in the past and how they did it? And the second part of the question is, how do we find um, information about how we can do it now with all the added technology and information we have these days? 
Well, for the stories in the past, I've written two. Uh, the one that I think kind of oh. caught everybody's attention was about George Hagopian, who was a chicken farmer and had actually mm. the largest Rhode Island red chicken farm in the United States, if not the world, at, um, in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, he started out at Perkins. I'll just tell you a little bit about him. Um, he started out at Perkins. His parents left him at Perkins and moved off to California. So from the time he was about 11, um, you, you stayed at Perkins from September to June. And then you were supposed to go home for the summer. Um, but there was a fair amount of children at these schools for the blind who did not go home for the summer. And Perkins had people who volunteered to take the kids for the summer. And George went to a chicken farm several of those summers. And when he graduated from Perkins with his piano tuning certificate, Boston was saturated with blind piano tuners. So he went back to the chicken farm and helped out because the farmer had passed away and helped out the daughter. And his idea was to stay a little while. Well, he ended up staying and ended up buying the farm and ended up dying on that farm. Um, and then you've got um, Francis Sears. I wrote about him too. He's from North Dakota. He, um, he, he went blind um, in his teens, early teens, and didn't, he didn't know what else he could do. He had no idea what a blind person could do. He went to the school for the blind, but he came home during the summers and some of the vacations, and they didn't have a lot of money. This was a farm that just, you know, it was, the family had to run it or it was, it was going to die. So he was sent out to do plowing, and he had no idea how he was going to plow the fields. He just prayed to God the horses knew what they were doing. And the horses ran off on him. Oh, no. And he's like, oh, my God, I'm this blind teen in the middle of my farm. I have no idea. Um, but his family dog came, and then he heard the horses. He got the horses back, started the plow up, didn't want to admit to his dad that he had screwed up, that he was scared finished the plowing, got back, and felt like, oh my God, <laughs> I just I just did this. If I can survive being left out in a field all by myself, <laughs> I, I think I could do this. And so he took far more interest in the farm and asked people uh, at the School for the Blind. So how do you do this? How do you, how do you do that? Asked other farmers, how are you doing this? How are you doing that? Uh, realized that the family dog always knew where home was. And we're not talking a dog guide. We're talking about the farm dog who, you know, herds the chickens back in the coop or chases them out, whatever your farm dog likes to do. Um, so he, incorporated a lot of that. He also did um, some piano teaching and was a musician as well because his farm probably kept its head above water uh, a lot of time, but he kept that family farm and was able to pass it on to, I believe, a, a niece um, later on because he didn't have any children. Now, how so, you do it today, you know, I'm you sorry, have... can I interrupt you? Sure. Mm -hmm. What are the names of those books? Oh, well, Francis Sears, S-E-A-R-S, like the store. And yes, he is like a fifth cousin to the founder of Sears. Um, and he was from North Dakota. George Gopian, 
and it's the names of the people are the names of the books. The names of the books. You said you wrote the book. Oh, I wrote my articles yes, for my oh. blind history lady. Okay, which gives me yeah. thank you very much. I have a Where monthly email it? list uh, for the blind history lady, and if you shoot me an email at theblindhistorylady at gmail .com, I will be glad to add you to my my email thank list. You. I send out a monthly email, and Georgia Gopian was um, several months back. Francis Sears. Um, he was uh, a few years back, probably about six or seven years back. Um, North Dakota and Minnesota is where I started a lot of my research because it's where I had names, where I had information, where I had notes. Mm -hmm. um, and so I started with that in, of course, Minnesota and uh, North Sorry Dakota farming communities, but no, yes, no, that's a good, info. that's a good reason to interrupt me because I almost <laughs> forgot to tell you that in the beginning. Well, I did forget to tell you that in the beginning. I have my monthly yeah, email. I'm glad to have people join my monthly email list. Just send me an email to theblindhistorylady at gmail.com and I will add you. Uh, um, so, and I have interesting um, stories coming up just in case you're, um, interested a little teaser here my writers group who i run some of my stories past uh before i put them up they helped me um they help focus me because they're all sighted people who don't know anything about blindness and they help me by saying what are you talking about what the heck is new york point what is you know they're really great at that anyway their favorite mm -hmm. one has been about the uh, blind madam here in um, denver um, so she's coming up. Oh, that up. sounds fascinating. Yeah, <laughs> like a brothel, so, madam. So, Jewel oh no, she had. Yeah, she had a. She had a house, and um, she ran her ladies. And the, 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 she was this. She was like the second tier of the high end madams here in Denver. Oh goodness! And Denver yeah. was well known for their brothels. Brothels, yes. <laughs> oh, okay, yes, yeah, so a brothel, madam. Okay. <laughs> so yes. wow. Okay. So that's so, coming Jewel, up anyway. Um, yeah, Jewel, those are really, really good questions. And um, I, I think, you know, that history of how they did things, mm -hmm. I, I'm just, I really am wondering too, um, how much of that we have lost. And, mm -hmm. You know, that, because there had to be quite a bit of innovation. They had to be people who were very flexible and adaptable and creative. And, and, and the, you know, today we have so many communication options. We can help each other out, but there's still an element in needing to be very innovative in the moment with what you have. Well, that, if I'm, that spirit is still if necessary. I might share a little something. Um, I've actually been working to learn nature navigation which is finding your way in the wilderness by just the nature science, no compass, no map and learning how to do that as a blind person. So like figuring out, you know, Oh, there's a lot of brush over here. There's a little brush over here. So this must be the West side. This must be the East, you know, things like that. Um, but also like I, when I lived on the uh, property up in Kentucky, the live livestock guarding dog learned how to find the front door within a couple of days. It was fast. So that is actually really good to do. Yeah. And, and but, I think what you were talking about is kind of that same spirit of, of mm -hmm. being innovative mm -hmm. and creative and, mm -hmm. and you know, that it, it does take a lot of that because the, the, our, as 
she puts it, our ancestors who were blind farmers, um, they didn't have YouTube. <laughs> they didn't no. have what we have. And um, even now when we have all of that, it's, it's pretty hard to find the resources. But thank you well, for calling, Jewel. Yeah. We're going just, to move on to I Dan. think yeah, we have a couple I just of other questions. Say, you know, let's, let's, not re let's not reinvent the wheel. Thank you for coming to tell us about the history. Mm -hmm. Yes. Next yes. person Thank we have is Janet. Hi, Janet. Hello. Uh, my question is, were there any blind farmers in Colorado? Oh, my gosh, yeah. Um, lots of them. It's, it was a rural state. Um, <clears throat> now, you had a lot of blind miners in Colorado as well because it was a mining state, and there's a lot of things that are not that growable in parts of the state or it weren't that growable in parts of the state at the time. But yeah, there was like um, Henry Taylor. He, um, his family had land along the Platte River, around along the Platte River. And so they had, um, before he went blind, the kids did things like they go down the river and they fill their buckets up and they bring it up and they irrigate their land and they grew fruits and vegetables and had several acres of fruits and vegetables. There was a f small family farm. Um, Dad was a musician, and Henry was a musician as well um, before he went blind. He went blind in his teens, and he had to go back home and help with the farm. Um, he and his little brother, his little brothers, um, steered the um, the wagons. They didn't have a horse. They pulled their wagons, and they would go and sell the fruits and vegetables up and down the um, the roads nearby the the home. And as the towns grew up, uh, they would go and sell them into town. Or they had an order of fruits and vegetables they had to bring down to you know somebody's store, and they would he would do that and he would sell them. He learned to be a broom maker and went to work in a broom factory that was operated by sighted people. He did um, pretty well with that, but he really did miss farming. He did farming on the side. Um, he got a house in town that was a large lot. He had chickens, um, which a lot of people had chickens. That was not uncommon to have chickens in town. You had your own fresh eggs and your, your Sunday fryer. Um, and when he got married, um, his wife came from a farm as well, and they bought up extra lots and expanded, and they did their own farming. Um, he, again, was very handy, and so he was uh, one of those guys who helped build the, the um, Eagles Hall in town and helped put on the roof when it needed to be repaired. He was a piano tuner. He built furniture as well. Did a lot of things. Um, not so basically, just he was basically he was jack of all trades. You bet. Um, so there was him. There was another guy who, after he went blind, um, he was a miner. And he took his money, invested it in land, and became a farmer because he figured that was a lot easier than being a miner. Where in New Montana, you had the blind guys who would go, the men who would go blind in the mines and then go back to the mines because they said, well, it's dark down there. And, you know, it's dark down there when I was sighted. It's still dark down there. I can still do it. 
they went back to the mines, but several of the miners here in Colorado did not go back to the mines. They went into farming or nothing. Some of them went back into nothing at all. All righty. I've, I've actually heard you before at the NFE Colorado convention on uh, YouTube. Uh-huh. And just wanted to say hi to you and Curtis. Well, thank you. Hi back at you. Hi, it's Janet yeah, from Colorado. Thank you, Janet. Thank you for calling. Yep, and I'm in Colorado I, as well. I, just, so. I, I really can't say enough how much I appreciate your dedication to history, or our shared history. We it need to have amazing. her back. Yes, absolutely. So do we have any other hands raised? You've got two more. Uh, Jody is okay. next. Yes, Hi, hello. Great presentation. Thank you. The, the question I have is I have heard that the census information might not be accurate since census workers were paid extra to locate blind people, that a lot of blind people were coded blind so that the census worker could make a little extra money. And I, I don't know how that influenced the total. And of course, you know, you talked about people that, that were obviously blind, that they went to the school for blind and everything. But I wonder how many people were coded blind because the census worker would make a little extra money on it. Well, there are a couple of safety uh, safeguards in that. Yes, there is a little bit of that in there, but very, very little. And the reason for that is because somebody also went over that from the community. And if you were going to get paid extra for the blind guys, they wanted to make sure you really found blind guys. And so there was somebody to double check that. Um, there also still are a lot of people who did not identify as what we would call blind today because back at that time it meant that you had very little to no vision none of this 2200 that didn't come in until the 1930s um, if you had enough vision to walk around the farmyard maybe read a little bit you weren't blind uh, so there are still, um, like for example, when I am going through uh, First World War records and finding people who were not eligible because they were blind in one eye or they couldn't see enough to pass the exam or whatever, they were not listed in the 1910 census as blind because they would not self-identify uh, as blind. So, well, people still don't self-identify. Yeah, <laughs> not, not much has changed in that <laughs> yeah, regard. Yeah, you're right. But, I see that too. So that's the other side of it too. Right. So yes, there was a wee bit of that, but by and large, because they were being paid extra, they had to either provide a little bit of proof or have it verified by somebody else that, oh yeah, that person really does not see very well. So it, there was a double check on that and there was not that many that got through, not as much as some people want to, to talk about. Um, and also when you looked because I've gone through enough of them, tracing them, um, I have, I think I've only found one that I believe was probably not blind. But then there was a lot of temporary blindness at that time as well. When you have people who had injuries, untreated eye diseases, um, the kids that went to the school for the blind, the parents would give up custody to the state so that their child could get eye surgery. And then they would try and get their kid back once the kid was sighted again. 
Um, but it was their way of making sure their child got um, got the medical treatment that they needed because the state would pay for that if they were in an institution by the state. Um, and that's how some people got their eyesight back too, even when, in, when they were in their 20s, is by becoming um, a student at a school for the blind or an asylum for the blind, as some of them were called, because they could get the surgery or the medical treatment. What a terrible choice for the parents to have to make. What a tough choice. Thank you for calling, Jody. Yeah. Oh, thank I, you. I think we had, I think well, we had another hand raised. Um, I'll, because right now it is uh, five forty-eight, so I'll give you the choice whether you not you want to take it. Yeah, we'll go ahead and take it. We okay. have a little more time here. All right, Nolan, go ahead. Let me ask him mute. Ask him to unmute. Are you unmuted now, Nolan? Sorry. Um, I. Hi, Nolan. Hey. You're you're coming through. Go ahead. Okay. So, I've uh, got a question. So, are there any books? Are there any blind farmers also in the state of Michigan or Illinois? Um, you know, I can't think of their names right now, but yes. Um, okay. If you were a Midwestern state, you were rural, uh, you had far farmers, blind farmers, uh, blind farmers, helpers, um, blind farm hands. Yes. I. I, the ones that I pulled for you right now are from Montana and Colorado and Minnesota and North Dakota. <laughs> Those are the ones I pulled for today. Um, and one thing about, you know, you know, George Hagopian that I did not um, mention is that he was one of the reasons that the Red Cross instituted farming into their two-year programs for the returning blinded vets. Um, they had Evergreen, uh, which was a a large estate and evergreen began teaching especially chicken farming why because of george hagopian who had become successful as a chicken farmer had been taking other blind students graduating from perkins and bringing them down to his farm to work on his farm and they would then once they learned how to be a chicken farmer go back home and become their own chicken farmer as well so he, a blind man, inspired all of that training through the Red Cross. So you have a okay. particular interest in Nolan. Um, thank you for calling. So may you I are ask so you, welcome. what is your interest? Are you from Michigan? Is that yes? I am from? from. I'm in the southwestern area of Michigan, and I'm in the Berrien County area. That's where I'm from. Okay. okay. Well, I would imagine that would be a pretty tough breed of farmer to work there in the winter. <laughs> yeah. You have some cold winters there. Thank you so much. You I, are so I welcome. You will... So I, Peggy, I appreciate you. I hope you he will come back. Yes. I'll be I'm glad to come back. I, I like mean, talking about this. Can't oh, shut me up it, sometimes. It sounds like we, we just 
barely scratched the surface. And this is a fascinating topic. Um, thank you so, so much. And Marge, do you have any last questions for Peggy before we start winding down? Well, I do think it is interesting to, to recognize uh, the extent to which farming was an occupation that so much, uh, so many people had a much higher percentage of the, the population um, earlier on in our country's history, say uh, 75, 100 years ago and, and, and beyond. Um, and so it makes sense to me that that some blind people would would have pursued um, working in in uh, those settings, say family farms, or um, to be hired on with a, another farmer. And I think it is absolutely fascinating to talk about the kind of context and what made it possible. Whereas today, with all the equipment that's used on big farms and the size of factory farms and you know, it it would seem to me anyway to be much more daunting uh, to be able to um, to take on farming at any kind of um, level um, beyond a very, um, you know, more modest um, farm setting. So I would I would love to invite you back, Peggy, to share more stories, especially as you continue in your work, if you uh, come across um, more of those sort of agriculture-related stories. I'd love to come back. That'd be great. That will be fantastic. I'll, um, we'll, we'll talk afterward and try to figure out another time. That would be great. Thank you. And again, thank you for your work. I, oh, thank you. I enjoy important. doing it. I enjoy doing it. Yeah, it sounds like you do. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, we are going to be back next month on the first Saturday of the month. And we are going to be talking about adaptive gardening. And this isn't just blindness. This is for anyone who wants to reduce the physical impact of gardening. We have a couple of master gardeners. One is a retired physical therapist. And they have all kinds of tips and tool suggestions. And um, it will be a good time to talk about how to keep gardening, even when your body's maybe saying, no, you don't want to be doing that anymore. So um, I, I hope you'll be back with us next month. And I, I do want to thank Joey, our uh, Zoom host. And I want to thank Jane, who did Clubhouse and streaming today. Thank you so much for your time and your help today. And Deborah, what's, what's in the works? You. What's in the works, Deborah, for um, beyond uh, February? What are we looking at? Okay, so uh, in um, in March, we're going to be doing uh, and talking with another master gardener who's going to be talking with us about how to start herbs. And this is going to go beyond just seeding. She'll be giving some ideas about how to grow herbs and start herbs. Herbs are always kind of a big topic for us here. So I hope people will be interested in that. Um, May, we are going to have Nella come back on and talk to us. She's going to have a whole bunch of baby goats born about then. And she says, we'll get some audio of baby goats. 
so we'll be talking about um, what she, you know, what she's doing, and she'll be milking and birthing and all kinds of stuff on her little homestead. Um, April, I'm not too sure yet. Maybe we'll be talking to Peggy about April. I, I don't know. I'll, I'll see what her calendar is like. So those are a couple of other things coming up. Right. So we will be back, folks, on, on February 3rd will be our, our next uh, time with you. And I hope since we will be talking about adaptive gardening options that you'll tell uh, friends, uh, folks you know, who um, who might be interested in this particular topic and maybe haven't joined us in the past, um, to, you know, pass the word so that uh, those who who would benefit from learning some about adaptations uh, will uh, take in the program next month on the 3rd. Well, thank you everyone who called and, and joined us today. We will talk to you next month.